This podcast is a production of Bread on the Water Media and RadioForThePeople.com and is engineered by Audio Diner Studios. Our theme music is provided to us by our dear friend Gordon Bonham, whose music can be purchased through GordonBonham.com. Our graphics for this podcast are provided by Kathy Piercy Fryan. The podcast is sponsored by Artisan Realtors and Silicon Prairie Ventures. This podcast is intended to give people a glimpse at what it's like to get a bad diagnosis, whether it's cancer or something else, and then go through a traumatic experience. First, we will discuss how my cancer story affected me and my family. Then we will talk about how their experiences affect other patients and their families, including discussions around why you need to advocate for yourself or for your family member. As we explore other patients' experiences, we will talk to some professionals about how to move forward after a traumatic, or not, medical event. I expect this to be a discussion that changes over time to reflect these combined experiences that I and others have had and what our journeys are like and the inevitable twists and turns that go along with real world experiences. Join us on this ride as we attempt to show joy and laughter as well as the tragedy. Welcome back to Normal, What's That Like? We're going to continue in this episode with our discussion with our host, Dan Adams, and his story of a cancer diagnosis. So they, they believe from the PET scan at this point, they've seen, you know, the PET scan results come in about that same time, and they've seen that my liver lights up like a Christmas tree. We didn't get to see the PET scan at that point. I actually didn't see it until... I was at my, after I'd had my final treatment um, and my doctor showed it to me because she wanted to my, show me what the difference was between that PET scan and the PET scan that had been done that morning, what the difference was. But my liver lit up like a bright light. And so, so they're, so they're, they've confirmed that I have, b-cell lymphoma in my spine at this point but they're thinking this double hit thing still is a possibility that the that i have liver cancer on top of which i never got that i didn't understand they kept saying double hit and i was at the point where i i didn't really even know what they were talking about i mean and anybody that knows me would find that surprising but I was just not coherent enough to understand what that double hit thing was. And, and the reality is, who, almost who cares? The first hit was so daggone bad. Who cares if it was a second hit? You know, you're, you, you, the first hit took you down. I mean, you were, you were pretty, pretty low at that point. I was, I was low and I was really sick. Um, and the, thing, the, the, the other thing that was going on is my kidney numbers were off the chart too. And they couldn't figure that out other than, I, the, than assuming that it was a reaction to what else was going on in my body, but my kidney. And that's not a normal re- reaction to, to chemo, wow. immuno chemo. I, I would, my kidney numbers started looking bad before I had had the chemo oh. and I did not have. So, so I didn't have my first chemotherapy treatment until the 27th, no 28th of February, the last day of February. And, um, they, um, 
they they came in that day, the day before the chemo, they were trying to figure out all kinds of stuff. So they're taking blood work, they're doing all this stuff. And the other thing that I had never experienced in my life before is I have, they're doing a, they bring an x-ray machine in and they're doing an x-ray on me. And then there's another group of technicians trying to put a um, an IV into me that's a poured IV, which to do that, they have to like, that. that's the x-ray machine. They've got to do that. And, and then they have to find out exactly where they want to place it. And at the same time, it's time for my two hours for the nurse to take blood out of my arm because they're doing this every two hours, taking blood and having test results done. And so the IV team has my one arm and the nurse has my other arm and I have a panic attack. I mean, it was just too much, too much going on. I'd never, I had no idea what a panic attack was. I do now know what they are. And it's, it's not a pretty thing. Um, and so I had this panic attack and I literally said to the nurse that was trying to take my blood, just wait. No, we aren't doing, we're not, I'm not going to have these people over here and you on the other side. It just, it's too much. We can't do that. Um, and so did they back off? Did they, respond? she did back off That's and, good. and it, and it was good. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll talk at some point about the care I got, but, um, it, uh, it, it was it was a added level of something I had never had before. I'd never in my life had a panic attack. And from then, I had a few more. So that wasn't very fun. Um, but they came in on the 28th. That same morning, they came in and talked to me about the, the side effects of the chemotherapy, which is, I'm not understanding anything anyway. But the girls are writing the notes. And, and Georgianne is asking questions. And for those who might be listening to this who might be suffering from a cancer you were you were you'd had the standard for lymphoma was it rchop was that the the combo it is it's it's something called rchop which is rituximab is the is the immunotherapy drug um but because of my kidneys they decided they couldn't give me the rituximab and that's actually the monoclonal antibody part right it's the immuno part right um and so they weren't going to give me the, the rituximab. They were just going to do the chemotherapy half, not the immunotherapy part of the thing. And so that was um, something that was, uh, you, you didn't know how that worked. But I got that and it took from, I think they started at three o'clock. And because they're doing it through an IV and there's one of the drugs that is a real, it takes a really long time and they have to put it in really, really slow. Um, when, unless th- there's a patch they can do that, that, um, where they, where they do it much quicker or, or not a patch. It's a, it's an injection into your stomach. They do it as an, as an IM, they, they inject it and then let your skin absorb it. Um, which you can take it a lot faster. But at that point, they were just giving me all everything through the IV. So I finished chemotherapy at 12.03 a.m. from 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, again, I'm... I'm not feeling but well. But you, did, you didn't miss a, like an exercise uh, outing or anything because of that. It was wasn't like it took anything off your off no, your plate for the day. No, I'm I'm in the hospital and I'm not go <laughs> and, and I don't think I'm going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. 
um, they were concerned about both my kidney and livers because they knew my kidney numbers were bad, my liver numbers were bad, and they were just concerned about Um, but they were just concerned. Yeah. And so, um, so the next day, you know, I've talked about this weight thing that they're giving me these fluids and my weight keeps going up. The next day, the kidney team comes in and says, we think you, we should put you on LASIK, which is designed to pull some of that fluid off of you for people that aren't familiar and, and with they that. Didn't, they didn't think the idea of put a whole bunch of fluid in and then take some off. Maybe they just put less fluid in. <laughs> I mean, you know, the math works out, I think. Well, it? I certainly, that was one question I asked because I didn't understand, but I think they believe that the putting the fluid in flushes some of the things out of your system. Uh, but, I, but I'm still, you know, at this point, I'm still gaining weight. And, and so they have this theory that we're going to put me on Lasix and get my weight down uh, my kidneys at this point are operating at 55 to 60%, and my liver numbers look bad. Um, and so they said, we don't think you're getting enough sleep. <laughs> and he I said, said, well, then get me out of the hospital. Well, right? what I said was, quit waking me up every two hours in the middle of the night to take blood if you... If you think I need more sleep. It's one of the fascinating things I think about the medical profession. You know, they're the folks that did the research years ago on the, the negative effects of having a schedule where you work days, some days, and then you would jump to nights and you're back to days. And they said, really bad for you. And of course, the profession that does that more than any other profession is the medical profession. So, you know, the, sometimes I wonder what the, the thinking is going on there. You know? so, so they did agree to stop waking me up in the middle of the night really? to take blood. Okay. Because it wasn't going to change But why was much. that not an obvious thing? I mean, you're not the only one that could have complained about that. Or, I'm sure it's a standard procedure. But why? Well, like that's you a good said, question. It, it, when you're that ill, sleep is critical. Why in the world can they not work around that? Uh, I don't know. But that's that's... There, the, this happens again later in my care that that I have to say stop. They weren't. It wasn't for blood work, but later on they're waking me up to take my temperature, to take my blood pressure, and to um, take my O2. My and I oxygen. know for a fact that they have equipment that they could just leave on you that could come on automatically and do that. You could sleep through a little thing, a cuff blowing up. You know, I I just sometimes you wonder. Did you, did you notice you had a piece of equipment that does that? Oh, you didn't. So I did not have one of those blood pressure things on me all the time. I did have a pulse oximeter to do the oxygen level. Um, and I and obviously they can see my pulse there and the temperature they can, they can put a, they can yeah, infrared, infrared yeah. thing on my forehead and figure that out. But they weren't doing it that way. They were sticking a thermometer in my mouth. Well, that's the only way they could wake you up. Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's no excuse for that. Right. So, so at this point, I'm still not eating. I'm still gaining weight. Um, I am, uh, I'm at like, I think at, by the 4th of March, I'm at 260 pounds. They decided, okay, let's start LASIK. But my legs, my calves were literally seven or eight inches in diameter. My, I won't talk about other parts of my body that were blown up, but it was incredible what happened to particularly the lower half of my body because that's where it all, it, it gravity works like everything else. So, so I'm blown up to two, 260 pounds. 
okay, we'll do Lasix now. Okay, great. That's a great idea. Let's take some of this fluid off that you're pumping into me. Um, but again, at this point, I've gone up 35 pounds, 40 pounds, something like that. And, um, and I'm blown up like a balloon. So in, you have a, a unique situation, though, that, that I'd like to have you talk about just a little bit. You have a wife who is a highly respected nurse, certainly has been in the profession for years. How did that play in? I mean, I got to imagine she had to be frustrated at times when she knew certain things ought to be done that weren't getting done or, or she knew enough to be concerned about why they weren't doing things. What, how did that play into this? So, so, she, so I will say that I felt like and she felt like actually I was getting pretty good care. The, the reality was, you know, I had Methodist Hospital, IU Health, when, when you're in the hospital, you're assigned to not just a doctor, you're assigned to a team of doctors. So I had a kidney team, I had a liver team, and I had an oncology team, and I also had a, um, uh, the, 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 the guys who were looking for the infection, I, infectious disease team. Now, the infectious disease people were kind of low-key at this point. They'd stop in and see me every once in a while. But the kidney and the liver people were very concerned about, you know, because I was in, at this point, I'm in kidney failure and liver failure. And that's what a lot of people yeah. don't survive. So I'm in kidney failure. I'm in liver failure. But, I mean, we really felt like, for the most part, that they were they were doing what they could. But the problem is, when you get three teams, they all have to agree on something. And so, like I said, when, when the kidney team got worried about me ballooning up, they wanted to stop the Lasix. But the oncologist wanted, because I'd had, a, I'd had chemotherapy, they wanted the fluid to flush me out. So you have differing opinions because they're coming from different places. The kidney people only worried about my kidneys. Liver people only worried about my liver oncologist is worried about the cancer and your wife is worried about the whole Dan Adams <laughs> and, you know, and wants this team to have somebody in charge that says, okay, I understand your concern, your concern, your concern. Here's what we're going to do. And there is no, there, there really isn't. Um, there really isn't a, a device for that. We, we literally got to that, but it took a little while longer. Um, we, we began talking. She began talking. She knew nurses. She knew the, the, the charge nurse, the, the, the man nurse manager, she knew all those people. She knew a lot of the doctors. Um, she didn't know the, 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 um, the oncologist group because she had never dealt with cancer before, but she knew a lot of people. My kids were who was frustrated. My kids were very frustrated because they felt like people weren't communicating with each other. They were making decisions on their own and weren't communicating with each other. So I made the assumption earlier that because you had a, a wife that was, you know, intimate with the medical, that she would be frustrated things weren't getting done. When in reality, it was probably the other way around. She understood how it had to work, and this is. And the she way had it works. worked in critical care and had and that so experience. The, the girls that were outside of that world that were more like this right. doesn't make sense. Right, ah, and, okay. and and so so they were concerned, and so and Georgian did get to be concerned, you know, especially when I ballooned up to 260 pounds and I'm not eating. So they know that that's not a realistic right. weight for me. 
and um, so she began she she began to be concerned, and so we, the social worker came in, and George Ann knew that from time to time you could have what's what's called a a um, like a care counseling session, um, and that brings the patient the patient's family at least a representative from each of those doctors group and nursing and social work into the room at the same time to have a discussion, everybody together. So that we called for that to happen. And um, I can't remember, that's terrible that I can't, I can't think of what that was called, but, but we did eventually get to that. But in the meantime, I've had chemotherapy and I have something else going on now. Now I have, I've got intense back pain. And then I have pain in my um, lower side of my chest. And, you know, so again, I'm getting more cardiac workups and I go back for another MRI and, you know, they aren't finding anything. So they're, so that they at that point say, well, this is one of two things. Um, either either your your bile duct could be clogged, or they in the meantime had done a biopsy on my liver to, to 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 confirm that I didn't have this double hit, and they were thinking maybe it was some pain associated with the biopsy of my liver, which was done through a needle through my neck and pushed down into the liver. And so they're thinking, well, maybe that irritated something and that's where the pain came from. But it could possibly be a bile duct. They kind of left that as a last choice. They really thought it was more related to the, to the, um, bio, the liver biopsy. Uh, and again, this point in time where, you know, things are, are not progressing in a good way. Um, I'm in liver failure, I'm in kidney failure, and now they find fluid on my lungs. And they're, they hear a cackle, they hear a cackle, and so now I've got fluid on my lungs. So now I get an NG tube, a feeding tube, um, and, you know, that's and I'm... Gonna, that's going to help you want to eat, Yeah, right? and I'm, well, I'm, at that point, then I'm NPO, I'm not right. allowed to eat. Um, it's all being done for me, Uh and so, you know, we're the 16th of March now, and we're going to, the day after this tube is, an NG tube is put in me, which is not a pleasant procedure, and they do it in the room, it's, it's gross as can be, but um, they, we have this care conference, and in the care conference, uh, we do find out finally, um, well, I have another I get another, that day I also get another one of those paracentesis where they stick the thing in me and try to try to drain. But they didn't get much fluid that time because, as I said, it was my legs and my lower extremities that were all blown up. Um, we, have the, we have the care conference. The oncologist does, my kids do ask about, the first time anybody's asked, and I, at this point I'm just along for the ride. I'm very ill. And they ask about, and I don't even, re I'm getting this out of the book the kids wrote. I don't remember this, but they did ask about survival rate. And so the oncologist says, 
that he has a less than 50% chance of living five years um, based on what they knew at that point. And um, so that, again, their, their concerns obviously are greater, but they do at that point eliminate the HLH and we have the results from the liver biopsy and so the double hit, it's the same cancer in both places, both in my spine and my liver. So, so you that's focus, good news. focus your treatment instead right. of having multi Right, even though I've already had the one treatment or partial treatment. So um, so they're trying to figure out this, this whole bile duct thing, and um, they decide that I need an emergency. So, so they're in my room in the morning, and they're pretty sure – that it's um, that the situation is that it was something from the biopsy. By noon or somewhere thereabouts, they're saying I need this thing called an ERCP that they don't do at Methodist Hospital. Of course. Um, and for those of you who don't know this, the really good news in all of this, to a degree, is the foremost one of the foremost liver hospitals in the United States is Indiana University Medical Center. They're rated in the top five for liver. So that night at 3.30 a.m., I get an ambulance ride to University Hospital so I can have this ERCP procedure, which ultimately probably saved my life. Um, And what is that procedure So the procedure is they're going to look at my liver and my gallbladder and all that stuff from the inside. They they put a tube down and they look and they determined that my bile duct was in fact clogged. And so what's happening is the stuff that should be going down my bile duct, all this nasty stuff that's from my body, in addition to when you have chemotherapy, all those dead cells are supposed to be flushed out that way too. They're not going anywhere. My bile duct is completely clogged. And so that's... Now, we clear pipes all the time, and we, we do. they don't have a roto-rooter kind of thing that so they can do. So while he's doing the procedure, he didn't tell me, they didn't describe how they did it, but they did put it, he said he put a hole in my gallbladder. He said the little there's a little flap in your gallbladder, and he said it was clogged, it wasn't working. We just reamed it out. He said, I made a hole about the size of my thumb. So you, that should be you shouldn't have any more problems that anything that needs to be flushed out should go and he says you really don't need that flap to work it it's not a major issue so my gallbladder was not allowing stuff to process through it which eventually got it out of my system um and so i have this ercp and um, they're thinking, hey, he's going to get better now. His, his liver is going to improve at this point, um, which I think my liver numbers did start improving. Oh, I guess the other thing I forgot to say was in the care conference, um, my oncologist, this, the girls had already and, and talked to me about it, and I was on board that we were going to get a second opinion from oncology. Um, my oncologist, I have no doubt, was a brilliant person. Um, he was much older. I don't know how old he was, but he was much older. 
and his bedside manner was terrible. Kind of the way he would he would come in with his, you know, there was a team. It was more than just him. He would come in one day and say, he looks really good today. And then he'd proceed to talk about numbers. And he'd come in the next day and go, oh, he looks really bad today. Um, you know, and it, it just, his communication skill, his bedside manner wasn't very good. So we had, the girls and I had discussed um, a second opinion. And fortunate that they had gotten sort of a referral um, you know, to the Simon Cancer Center, which the funny thing was when I was admitted to Methodist on February 17th, the doctor said, one said to me, why are you here? The admitting doctor. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you should be at IU Simon Cancer Center. That's the place to go in our IU health system if you have cancer. And I said, I don't know. We didn't know. This is where they sent me. So we, the girls had been in the process of trying to get a referral from IU Simon, but at the care conference, or I don't know if it was exactly at the care conference, but sometime that day, the oncologist, I think he may have come back. I don't think he actually did it in the care conference because we had mentioned it to him in the care conference that we were going to seek a, a second opinion possibly. He came back and, and, and announced that because I was atypical. Um, and did Abby hit him at that point? No, Abby okay. wasn't there, I don't think. Okay, okay. Um, he, he came back and said that he was basically firing me as a patient. I was too complicated, too complex. He had never, and he had never. And that wasn't even referring to your illness. Yeah. That was <laughs> so, yeah, so he, um, he fired me that day. Ah. And. Um, that didn't happen to you very often. Uh, well, you, you know, you never know. So, so the other, I, I have to, I do have to step back a minute because we, we said that the, the design of this podcast was we were going to try to keep the subject matter somewhat light when we could. So one of the things that happened sometime between March, February and March, I mean, I've been in the hospital almost a month at this point or at right at a month, um, was one of the days, and this was fairly early um, in the hospital, I came out of, you know, they, they weren't letting me get up and do things that the nurses were taking care of me, and I'd have to have help to get in the bathroom and take a shower and that kind of thing. And I came back to the room one day, and I said, I think somebody put hand sanitizer in my underwear. Because <laughs> if you've ever had that burning sensation that you get sometimes from putting hand sanitizer like on the back of your hands instead of the palm of your hand, I felt that in not a very comfortable spot. <laughs> and um, and the girls thought that was hilarious. And they were sure that I was just having some out of mind experience. Yeah, yeah. But it turned out when I was getting cleaned up, somebody had set my underwear on the side of the sink and there was auto, one of those automatic hand dispensers, hand sanitizer dispensers there. And if you wave your arm across it, it shoots out oh, hand sanitizer. No. So there literally was hand sanitizer in my underwear. So I digress to that. But, but so after I get out of the hospital, my brother says, I don't know if this is in good taste or not, but I have something for you. And he has a picture. It's a stick figure of a person 
with a frown on their face. And it says, I think somebody put hand sanitizer in my underwear. <laughs> and so I now have two t-shirts, oh, no. an orange and a blue one um, with that on them. But uh, anyway, I couldn't, I, I can't tell the story without that. Yeah. So we're, as I said, it was March 16th when we have this care, care, care conference. And the next day, of course, St. Patrick's Day. So George Ann on her way in, and, and uh, the other thing I guess I need to mention is once I got really sick, and I don't know what those dates were, but once I got really sick, they, someone stayed overnight with me every night, whether it was George Ann or one of the girls. They didn't leave me alone because they wanted to, not only did they want to be there for me, and I wanted them there because I knew my mental capability wasn't great, um, they wanted to be there in case a doctor came in and said something and, and they didn't miss something. But anyway, Georgiana on her way in that morning stopped at the, uh, at the gift shop and bought this hat with a leprechaun on it and a, and a four leaf clover and said, happy St. Patrick's day. And she took a picture of me that day. And so I have that picture to this day or, well, the first time she showed it to me was when I got out of the hospital. Obviously, I have recovered at this point somewhat because I'm here speaking to you. But, um, but they took this picture. And so she didn't show it to me till I got home and was even probably a couple weeks after I got home. So this picture, if you've ever seen a National Geographic and pictures of people in sub-Saharan Africa that are malnourished or the people from, um, from uh, the Holocaust. That's kind of how my face looked. Sunken. Sunken. sunken and, yeah. and, and again, I've got it. I'll show it to you here in a minute. So St. Patrick's Day, as I was saying, this awful picture. Um, but they also come in and decide that they think that that I now have an infection. We're back completely 360. We're back to the infection again. Well, but the infection is a result of the stuff that backed up in my liver. Oh. And it's somehow because of the, probably because of these paracentesis that they're doing where they're puncturing my abdomen. They introduced The something. fluids are mixing and I have, I have a, I have some kind of a infection. And so I'm now going to have to do um, blood cultures all the time. Uh, the, the really good news that happened around St. Patrick's Day was Georgian actually got um, to get away from the hospital. On St. Patrick's Day, two of her childhood friends took her out for lunch and they were gone for several hours and she got a little bit of a respite. And then the next day, um, she went to dinner with Kevin, our host, and our, some other friends of ours who were in from out of town, they went out to dinner. And so they at least, she at least got a few minutes of feeling real or feeling normal. And, and you're, you'll find out if you remember the name of this podcast, it's normal. What's that? Um, I'm going to get back to feeling normal. Um, but so, so now I've got an infection on top of everything else. But the good news is 
Now my liver numbers are also starting to literally, magically after this ERCP, my liter, liver numbers are starting, kiver, liver, whatever it is, um, are starting to get better. But now I'm doing, now I'm on this blood culture train and, and they put me in isolation because they're not sure, you know, they don't want me to get any more infected. So anybody that has to come, wants to come visit me has to gown up, mask the whole nine yards. And, and so, you know, we're, we're again beginning to have a discussion about going home, but yet not sure what that looks like or when that's going to be. But, um, but, you know, in the meantime, we're doing the thing with the Lasix and, the, and, the, and, and really some of the swelling has gone down and my, I don't look, as I said, my face already looks emaciated, um, but my legs are still humongous. So they have somebody come in and I, I wish I could remember her name, a physical therapist of, of sorts who literally wraps my legs with these wraps. I thought they had and in fact, the, inflatable things that they, they could they put did, on legs. They did that, and it wasn't really doing the job. Oh. And they also didn't want to put too much pressure um, because I, you know, bed sore kind of stuff. I had been in the hospital bed for a oh, long period true. of time, so they were trying to not be too aggressive with it. So they did these wraps, but it—I mean, it was miraculous. I mean, in like three days my calves went from eight inches around to being almost normal again with this woman who came in and wrapped them once and leave it on for an hour. Then she'd come back, take it off and wrap them again. And I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing that this, what looked like a pretty benign process was working so mm. well to get this off. Um, but, but here we are um, talking about discharging and suddenly the new conversation is, I need to gain weight to go home. <laughs> I had gained 40 pounds that I have now lost. And my weight at this point, if you remember, it was 260 on March the 8th. My weight at this point is under 160 pounds. I'm under 160. And you lost 100 pounds? In fluid. 100 pounds of fluid. And so, so now we're discussing how I'm going to go home. So ultimately, you know, we have, we play this blood culture game for about four or five days. And finally, you know, we're get, we, we think we've got a clear blood culture. We're not exactly sure da, 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 da. Ultimately we get, and, and again, we have to get the liver team to clear me. We have to get the kidney team to clear me, which the kidney team, they took a, I think about a week earlier, they said they were done. They were, they meant it. They were done. They didn't need to see me anymore. And so they, they just said, we're not involved, um, which was good news. Yeah. Um, but so I, we had to get the kidney team and the, the, excuse me, the liver team and the oncology team to agree. Now infectious disease again, because I have blood culture problems to, to get me out. But ultimately, um, they decide, yeah, he's going to get ready to go home, but he's, he needs to gain weight. So in this discussion, everybody has. And, and was food still tasting bad to you or had it? Food improved? was still not, no, I still no. had no appetite. Um, but, but it was better. It wasn't, things didn't taste just terrible all the time. So, um, so, but they decide that 
they're going to put this feeding different kind of, it's not an NG tube, it's an NJ tube. It goes into my stomach instead of elsewhere. And so it's, um, it's going to give me nutrients, you know, on a consistent basis all the time. Uh, but unfortunately, it's also spring in Indiana. It's March, in the, around the 20th of March. And my allergies are pretty bad. And so I get post-nasal drip. And so in addition to having this, this food being pumped into my stomach, I'm getting post-nasal drip. And I'm not feeling good at all. And I also, the other thing is I can't sleep at night. I have to get up to go to the bathroom and whatever else. But they, they, they get this feeding tube in with me and they decide they're going to send me home. So the other thing that's transpired is I've had to have physical therapy. And at this point, I can't walk on my own. I'm using a walker. Um, I ultimately can do a lap around the floor. That's how much strength I've lost. So you've gone from uh, hiking glacier uh, with a backpack on to not even being in three months to not even be able to walk without a walker. Right. And, and literally I could walk what amounts to less than a block. I could walk a lap around the floor and that's as far as I could go without being out of breath and tired and need to go back, sit back down. Join us for our next episode when Dan discusses being released from the hospital finally and then returning home to continue his journey towards finding what is normal. <laughs>